0: This is Global Tennessee, news, analysis, and commentary from the Tennessee World Affairs Council in Nashville. Global Tennessee is produced in association with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The World Affairs Council is a nonpartisan, non-profit educational association, and the views expressed on Global Tennessee are those of the participants.
1: Today's episode of Global Tennessee will bring you a special conversation on why Europe matters, Europe-U.S. relations, and much more about current challenges in Europe with someone who is arguably the American diplomat most seasoned and knowledgeable on these issues, John Kornblum, career U.S. Foreign Service officer and former U.S. ambassador to Germany. Ambassador John C. Kornblum has a long record of service in the United States and Europe, both as a diplomat and as a businessman. He is recognized as an eminent expert on U.S.-European political and economic relations, in particular in Central and Eastern Europe. He served as the U.S. Ambassador to Germany from 1997 to 2001. Before that, he occupied a number of high-level diplomatic posts, including U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs, Special Envoy for the Dayton Peace Process, U.S. Ambassador to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the Helsinki Process, Deputy U.S. Ambassador to NATO, and U.S. Minister and Deputy Commandant of Forces in Divided Berlin. From 2001 to 2009, he was Chairman of Lazard Freres, Germany. He currently serves as Senior Counselor to the international law firm NOR LLP and as a Senior Advisor to the worldwide consultancy Accenture. Mr. Kornblum has also served on a number of supervisory and advisory boards, including those of ThyssenKrupp, Technologies AG, Bayer AG, Russell Reynolds and Motorola Europe. He is a member of the boards of the American Chamber of Commerce in Germany, the American Academy in Berlin, the Deutsche Oper in Berlin, and of numerous non-profit organizations on both sides of the Atlantic. He received a B.A. from Michigan State University in 1964, and he has been the recipient of many awards, including the Knight's Cross of the Order of Merit from Germany and an Order of Merit from Austria. Now, Global Tennessee is pleased to bring you our conversation with Ambassador John Kornblum. To Global Tennessee. Today, we're talking with Ambassador John Cornblum. And uh, Ambassador, thanks for uh, for coming in and uh, joining us here uh, on the podcast. My great pleasure. Uh, I'll I'll start with just uh, a little familiarity. With our uh, our podcast notes have, have your bio so people can uh, look at your long distinguished career. Uh, but tell us a little bit about your relationship with Nashville. You're you part time
2: resident here. Yeah. Well, we're not from here. We're from the north, so to speak. And we came here because our, each of our sons was uh, applied and was accepted at Vanderbilt. So for about six years, we were coming and visiting them all the time. And uh, at a certain point we said, well, we need to have a, we've lived in Europe for 25 years. We need to have a residence in uh, the United States. And we decided that Nashville was the place we liked the best. And we've So we owned a house here for six years and we're, Terrific! Anything but disappointed. We love it here.
1: Terrific. Well, let's uh, let's start talking about uh, your recent presentation uh, here in Nashville. You, you talked to some community groups about why Europe matters, and as, uh, as someone who knows uh, European politics and U.S. interest in uh, in Europe, uh, we couldn't have a, a more uh, insightful or a better perspective on on what's happening uh, in, in Europe and the relationship. But can you give us a, a distillation of uh, what your uh, presentation was about on that topic?
2: Sure, well the major point is that Europe and a close relationship and close cooperation for Europe is very much in American interest. And I was an American diplomat for a long time and it never occurred to me to do anything that was not in American interest. But the fact is, of course, that Europe, which is the, if you will, the, the foundation of our society here also, ha- was for many years and still is in some ways uh, in need of support. And certainly after World War II, in the very dark days after World War II, American support was what kept Europe alive. And so there's a certain sense of here's America doing things for Europe and Europe receiving things from America. <clears throat> now, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, that certainly was the case. Now it's much less the case. But it's also true that Europe has not really put itself back together after World War II. And so the United States is clearly the senior partner, will stay that way as long as any of us can think in the future. So somebody might argue, as some people are in this country right now, well, we did our job in Europe, let's let them do what they need to do. And here's where... It's important to understand what American interests are, first place security Europe is a area of about one third the size of the United States, five hundred million people gross national paddock larger than ours, but also at the frontier of many threats to the United States, not just Russia but also the near east also uh North Africa, but also internally there are still some threats. The Bosnian War was a good example. Mm -hmm. So it's very important that the United States be engaged there, see that its interests are protected, and to tell you the truth, exert leadership there because they're waiting for our leadership, and I can tell you as one who helped exert it that our leadership works when we exert it. But that's the old traditional thing. The other thing is that the United States and Europe are the world's largest community of like-minded economies. We're the largest investment and trade community in the world. And we have, we're talking now about tariffs and we're gonna have some tariffs here and some tariffs there. The fact is that for 90% of the products which are sold across the Atlantic, there are no tariffs. And something like 50% of the products, uh, the so-called sales, are actually what they call intercompany transfers. That is, General Motors transferring a transmission from Tennessee, of course, to uh, Europe, or Volkswagen transferring something to, so it's not really sure. it's not really. And Volkswagen exports. being
1: big here in Tennessee down in Chattanooga. That's right,
2: too, and so it's not really exports, it's intercompany. But at the same time, the amount of trade between the United States and Europe is something like a billion dollars a day think of that a day a day now we have a bigger relationship which is canada there's more than a billion but still a billion dollars a day is okay billion with a b with a b a thousand million (laughs) and so uh our and and then lastly and perhaps the most important point and i went into this in my talk with the world affairs council is that we are now in a new phase there's a new competition for the future This competition is gonna be as much technological and intellectual as it is material. And we in Europe form by far the largest block of democratic open market countries in the world. Together we have almost a billion people. And it is we who are the ones who are gonna have to build a democratic future for the world. If we don't, there are the Russians, there are the Chinese, there are other people who are not at all interested in the democratic world. So if you add it up, it's simply much better for the United States to have a major partner like Europe than to be alone in a world trying to, d- to pursue all of our interests by ourselves.
1: And, and it's much more than just the, uh, the economics, it's the, uh, the political influence. In the, and, in the... The, and
2: the, if you will, the moral and the uh, values. I mean, uh, our societies, we, we have been talking about this for decades and it happens to be true our societies are stronger than other societies because we also have open, tolerant societies where people can divide their lives the way they want to. Which they, We have a free press. We have freedom of religion. We have freedom of education. There aren't all the world is not like that. But the countries who are very deeply democratic the way we are are the countries of Europe. And, and one of the,
1: uh, as I understand, one of the principles of the, the NATO alliance is that uh, the participants have to be democratic societies. Uh, That's right. Societies.
2: In fact, um, the NATO alliance, when it was formed, was really formed not as a military defense alliance, but as a community of like-minded nations. And the whole idea of the NATO alliance, when it was first formed, was to start building a community. Across the Atlantic between the Europeans and the United States. Now, unfortunately, things happened very fast. The Cold War heated up with Russia. Um, Ch- Russia and China invaded South Korea. Uh, as, and so, unfortunately, rather rapidly, the military side of the alliance also became important. And right. I'm not, uh, uh, I don't apologize for that because we are now the largest. Democratic security force in the world, and NATO is the only integrated security force in the world. There again, a tremendous advantage for the United States.
1: Right, and and uh, as I understand, the uh, the first implementation of uh, Article Five, I think it is, of the NATO uh, agreement was uh, after 9/11, when right. it, when NATO troops got involved in uh, Afghanistan. Well, they
2: didn't actually. No, that no, that's not quite true. Uh, it, the first the first. Call for Article Five and implementation was after 9/11 when the European allies simply declared, "Your your security is our security. We're on your side." But the Afghanistan thing is not necessarily an Ar- Article Five mission; it's a joint mission. This is technicalities. But, okay, I see. Uh, it, n- n- the Europeans, but the circumstances did, drew from uh, they from did, 9/11. and the Europeans did contribute. In fact, a lot to helping us in Article 5, but it was things like um, security cooperation. It was things like p- pooling all of our information about terrorism. It was things like exchanging police forces and things like that. There weren't any post 9-11 f- battles until Iraq came along, but that was two years later. But the Europeans immediately started supporting us in all of these other extremely important... So
1: these these are the the hardware and software of uh, international relations and cooperation that most people just don't see uh, when they read the, the headlines.
2: Well, that's right, and uh, you, there's much more to it than even that I've mentioned. But the question... And this cooperation can go on uh, pragmatically without, it, or without or relationships, or it can go on on the basis of common institutions. And the vision of the united states after world war ii was to build a world of institutions so that we didn't have to have wars anymore that was the hope then it turned out to be a little bit too early but so the united nations was supposed to be a sort of a world government but we also founded the world bank we also founded the uh, the international monetary system the so-called bretton Woods system and also the nato alliance and these were all structures which were going to help everybody work together at, for common goals rather than having somehow to coordinate it on a, a bilateral basis.
1: So getting back to the, the basic question, why Europe matters, you mentioned there are some who uh, would say that uh, our, our time has passed in in, uh, in that relationship. And, and now we're uh, we're beyond the Euro- what's going on in the EU, but the transatlantic alliance. And there are some who, uh, as you pointed out, are, are not as uh, interested in that relationship as uh, we had in the past, especially during the Cold War.
2: That's right, and a lot of people are saying, oh, we, the real threat now is China, and we should be focusing on China. Well, we've always been focusing on China. I mean, there is, um, it is not impossible for the United States to do more than one thing at a time. Right. But the European aspect, allows us to have uh, friends and close allies who support the same things as we do. German Chancellor Merkel was in uh, China this week, and she spoke out very clearly about Hong Kong, for example. She was the first Western voice, really, to come out and talk about Hong Kong.
1: Now what does what the transatlantic alliance cost the United States, for those who are looking at uh, the, the pragmatic? what what? What is uh, the investment beyond the the political relationships, the structures, the institutions? I know we have the NATO alliance, but the uh, U.S. military forces that fall under the NATO umbrella would be funded and uh, and would be there or, anyway. W- in in any case, so right. um, well, I don't know. For the people example. who are looking in the dollars and cents terms it, it, is is there relatively much cost these days compared to the the benefit?
2: Well, you know, our defense budget is. Uh, in the and billion. Billion. Yeah, but that goes for for the entire world. Sure, and, and the the thing is, we would probably have to do all the things we do in NATO with or without an alliance. Uh, would we have gotten involved in Afghanistan? Probably. Isn't it better that we have not just the twenty seven NATO countries, but a lot of other sometimes quite small countries like the Republic of Georgia? who has been the largest contributor of forces outside of NATO to the fight in Afghanistan.
1: And the infrastructure in Europe that supports... And the infrastructure uh, in
2: Europe which supports it. It would take cost us hundreds of billions to replicate that infrastructure. Uh, one of our biggest and most important uh, airfields for, not for carrying bombers, but for supplying uh, operations in Afghanistan or in northern uh africa or wherever is it ramstein air force base in germany for example Mm -hmm. if you go there you've probably been there it's it's like a city within a city it's in a major operation
1: and all that infrastructure was built obviously during the cold war but it's still there and the investment is
2: already yeah it's been it was renewed and some and and the structures were changed after the cold war but the fact is that that europe for us is a, a great big forward staging platform for lots of interest that we're gonna have anyway. I could give you another extremely important interest and that is the so-called Southern Command in Naples, Italy. That is the home among other things of the Sixth Fleet. And the Sixth Fleet is uh, patrolling the Mediterranean a good deal of the time, most of the time. And it is one of the reasons that uh, the Mediterranean has stayed relatively peaceful even with the horrible things going on in the Arab world or in other places and And, without without,
1: the the sixth fleet has been integral in our operations in the Middle East they were that's right
2: but the sixth fleet is also a NATO command yeah and and the sixth fleet uh, is supported by other NATO navies continuously so it all works and the the interesting thing um, about this is we're coming in a phase um, where uh, many Americans partially because of our own history we shouldn't forget we're an immigrant nation whatever we think about europe now all of our relatives including yours and mine left they didn't want to be there so there's a certain sense of sort of almost uh, ambitious independence in america vis-a-vis europe and that's and in europe by the way there is a simple similar return feeling of a, a little bit of anger and and distrust about the people, why wasn't Europe good enough for you? So this is going to go on forever, but as far as I'm concerned, it makes life more interesting. That's
1: peeling back the onion pretty
2: deep. Yeah, but it, it it has to do also with whether people think we should be engaged in Europe or not. I hear this all the time now, even from supposedly very sophisticated people. Well, why can't they just take care of themselves? Why do we have to be paying their bills? Well, we're not paying their bills, and I would respectfully totally disagree with the President of the United States. They're not paying their bills. They are paying their bills. We're not subsidizing them. We are pursuing our interests there, and they are helping us. We are paying a major share of the bill, A, because we can, but secondly, because we have the biggest interests. But it's not that we're paying for the defense. That's something that's simply not Right, not and, and
1: I think people misunderstand when uh, the charge is made that uh, Germany or any other country uh, doesn't uh, contribute their required amount, that people think that that's a payment to the United States, but that's no. simply the, the, their internal investment in their own uh, armed forces. That's right,
2: and that's a big issue. It's been there back when I was in NATO, which is now over 25 years ago. The figure was not 2%, it was 3%. And uh, the uh, whole question of who contributes what to the alliance is a real one. And it's not that we shouldn't be expecting that the Europeans do more, but the fact is that we are getting so much out of it that it's worth it, even if the Europeans didn't pay a nickel, I would say in my own personal view that it would be worth it for us.
1: Sure. Uh, Let me remind everybody, this is the Global Tennessee Podcast from the Tennessee World Affairs Council, and we're talking with Ambassador John Kornblum, who's a distinguished leader in U.S.-European relations, both as a diplomat over uh, a number of decades and uh, and now as a businessman. Uh, We're going to continue to talk about the Transatlantic Alliance, but uh, Ambassador, I'd like to dig in just a a little bit. I wish we had... uh, Hours and hours to talk about this because you you have a fascinating uh, role in in uh, important history and and that's the Dayton Accords and the Balk- Balkan conflict and you were responsible for conceiving the uh, the Dayton uh, Accords uh, under uh, Ambassador Holberg can you tell us about uh, that era and uh, what. Uh, for our listeners who may not be familiar with the uh, the war in the Balkans, uh, what brought the uh, U.S. involvement and what uh, your role and, and perspectives were on what happened there?
2: Yes. Well, the first thing I'll say is this was a real war. 200,000 people died in that conflict, most of them civilians, most of them not in military action but in uh, war crimes.
1: And this isn't uh, just in history. This is in the lifetime of this most, is the most last people. the 20 but, years, yeah. yeah.
2: And, uh, and so, at first, it was a real war. Secondly, it came not without some warning, but the viciousness of it was something that surprised everyone, including myself. Um, for those uh, thinking back into history, the Balkans were, following World War II, united in a single, more or less in a single country called Yugoslavia. And Yugoslavia had a quasi-communist government, but a more modern, open com- communist government and was ruled for 20 or 30 of years by a dictator who was also a, shall we call him a benign dictator, uh, Joseph Tito. But he also exercised iron control over everybody. And uh, that Yugoslavia was, to many people, considered perhaps a model of what might happen. But when Tito died, which was in about 1980... And then the Cold War ended, Yugoslavia started falling apart because it was constituent parts of not only of proud countries but of countries whose systems are to, and religions, above all, are totally contradictory. Mm-hmm. There is a corner there, which I have visited, where Roman Catholicism, Orthodox Christianity, and Islam meet in one city, a city called Brichko. And... Uh, that those tensions that unfortunately have been there a long time, and when the, as the Cold War started to fade away, the nationalist feelings started again. That's why you have Europeans who are so worried about nationalism because they've seen not in World War Two but in the Balkan War just twenty some years ago what happens when you have nationalist feelings.
1: And wasn't it also the passing of Tito?
2: Well, the, Tito passed in eighty or eighty one, eighty two, and the war started in ninety two. So there was a, a ten year period of sort of decline, um, confrontation, whatever you wish to call it. And of course, it has to do with personalities, and there were a couple of big personalities there: uh, uh, Milosevic, uh, the Serbian president, and uh, uh, T- Tudjman, the uh, Croatian president who really wanted to get out of Yugoslavia because they were both nationalists. Okay, this is all okay as long as it goes. But then very rapidly, as it does in that part of the world, it turned into conflict. And it was a really vicious and brutal and horrible conflict. And I was there, not, I wasn't part of the war, luckily, but I was there as the war was going on and after the war. And I can tell you the the death and destruction was terrible. It was, And this shook the Europeans up completely because they thought that, that Europe had been made sort of tension-free and war-free. And they couldn't handle it. It was too much for them, to tell you the truth. They were too new on the scene after having been in this Cold War of their own. But the United States didn't necessarily want to get involved either. And this is, for me, a proof of one of the principles that I believe in, which is American security begins in Europe and it doesn't begin in the middle of the Atlantic because our security then started to become very threatened by all of the bad things going on in the Balkans. So after, I have to admit, it was after three years where President Clinton didn't want to get involved, uh, we finally decided we had to, and that's when I came on the scene along with Ambassador Holbrook, along with Ambassador Hill, who was one of your guests here recently, and we and a bunch of other people, but we were quite central in it, we put it together. And it was uh, two years of heavy negotiation. And then when the negotiations were over, I took over as the special envoy, which was to implement the agreement. And that was probably even harder than negotiations, because the people had agreed to things on paper, but they weren't necessarily willing to do them in reality.
1: Well, uh, just uh, dropping back a little bit, I, I think the uh, the first uh, turn of events, was it uh, Slovenia that uh, declared independence and uh, yeah. the central government uh, was going to crack down, send well, tanks into the cities? And,
2: there was a very tense period in February, March 1992, and that is when uh, Serbia started threatening the others. That is when Slovenia declared its independence from Yugoslavia. And also Croatia and Bosnia, Herzegovina, were ready to declare independence. And uh, at that time then the military started to be active. And there was horrible, horrible destruction and and fighting in Croatia, in Mm -hmm. in eastern Croatia. There was a small short war in Slovenia. It's called the 10-day war. But it really wasn't a war, it was just sort of the Yugoslav army standing sort of threatening there until they were pulled back by the Serbians who didn't want to have a war.
1: But it was much uglier elsewhere. There was a genocide and... Then uh, it
2: became ugly in Croatia and in Bosnia. And very, very ugly, as I said. A rough estimate of the number killed is 200,000. So it was a real war. It was very destructive and it was, very, it was impossible for the United States to stand on the sidelines.
1: So tell us about the, uh, the role of diplomacy and specifically your role in, uh, in bringing, bringing peace to that conflict.
2: Well, after, after um, really two and a half years of fighting, and you have to just imagine for yourselves the city of Sarajevo, which is a beautiful city, the Winter Olympics in 1980 were held there. Um... The city of Sarajevo was cut off from the rest of the world uh, without electricity for three years, and this is not a small city. I mean, it's not a major city, but it's a couple hundred thousand people, and they they lived there without electricity, and not only did they live without electricity, but they lived – the geography of the place is that Sarajevo is down in the valley, and the sides of the valley are no more than a mile away from the center of town and so the Serbs put guns up, gun emplacements around and just bombarded the city all day long. So thousands of people were killed in Sarajevo just being hit by Serbian uh, at, artillery. And we can remember
1: the pictures of uh, the people cowering as snipers were, were shooting people right. in the street indiscriminately.
2: That's right it was it was one of the most horrible things you can imagine and so it was very important to get the, the war stopped and It's now uh, 25 years since the Dayton Agreement was signed, and there's a lot of people are saying, well, the Dayton Agreement was a failure because it didn't lead to full democratic government in the region, but the the Dayton Agreement was designed to stop a war, and uh, it stopped the war without one American casualty, by the way. Uh, We had... uh, We had about 15,000 troops there, and and one person unfortunately did die, but it was in an automobile accident. And so there were no casualties on the Western side at all. And it was the first military operation where, the first and only so far, where Russian units were taking command from an American NATO general. Hmm. That was quite quite an event. I was very excited about that. But we pacified the place. And I was, then it was my job to get a civil society going there, and I did that for a year and a half. Uh, I spent um, most of my time <clears throat> in the region, as we called it, building up this civil society. And it's held, but it's not perfect. And it, if it weren't for the support of the outside world and also, above all, the financial uh, subsidies, It probably wouldn't hold.
1: Now, for for most people, they they may not recall what the Dayton Accord was. It's Dayton, Ohio, where the negotiations... Yeah, it
2: was an Air Force base. The reason it's it's the Dayton Accord is because we needed to have a place where we could isolate everybody and where they could get there without being seen there, so to speak. So the perfect place was Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, which is very large. It has a long, long airstrip, several of them uh it's it's got lots of quarters where people can stay and it's totally cut off from the outside world and so we were there nice
1: nice fence around it and keep keep everybody out
2: nice big fence uh we were there uh for not not that long actually three weeks but it was three intense weeks where the we had after all four heads of state there who were who were um very in, uh, impatient about getting their way, so it was quite a quite a uh, dramatic experience, if I may put it that way. A very dramatic experience. Lots of shouting, lots of crying, lots of people making charges, lots of the sides saying we're finished, we're leaving here today. We're getting... and so it was a very. It wasn't just a, what you see in the on TV of a UN a meeting or something. This was a really emotional. Set up, and we weren't sleeping at all, which made the emotions even more mm-hmm. raw, shall we say?
1: And in the end, there was an agreement.
2: In the end, there was an agreement. To the very end, it was still pieces open, and I played a little role in that because the Serbian president, who Mr. Milosevic, who was a not a, shall we say, a shrinking violet, he was
1: not not a nice guy. He wound up in uh, he
2: wound up in prison, where yeah. he then died of a heart attack. Right. Um,
1: for for war crimes? Crimes against humanity? Yeah.
2: He uh, didn't want to f- sign one passage, which is very controversial. I need not go into it now. But it was. he said, we will postpone that. And I was the person there running the discussion, with the Secretary of State, by the way. And I said, no, we're not leaving. I didn't even ask the Secretary of State whether he agreed with me. I just said it.
1: Was that Albright at
2: the time? No, it was uh, Warren Christopher. And um, he said, I don't care what you say, I'm leaving right now. So I got up and stood in the door and blocked him. Now, I'm not a small person, as you can see, and uh, Milosevic was not a small person. So we sort of literally bumped each other, and I said, Mr. President, you sit down. That's what I said. And then, this is one of the great moments of my career, I suppose, Warren Christopher, the Secretary of State, said, picked up he was a, he was a lawyer by training picked up one of those long yellow pads that lawyers use and said okay john dictate the sentence for me so i had the uh the uh, the distinction of having the secretary of state being my stenographer so to speak and he wrote it down and and i said this is it mr president you're going to take this He said, oh, I'm giving up on everything. You people, you're just murdering us. You horrible, horrible people. And he said, okay. So then he took it, and then we went down, and and there were 2,000 people in a room down below waiting for the signing ceremony. And he thought that that would be enough to stop us, but he...
1: It was right up to the last minute?
2: It was right up to the last minute, yeah.
1: Incredible stuff, and uh, what, what a perspective on history and a, and a key role. It, it lends a new um, twist to the phrase uh, arm-twisting. Yeah, uh, this
2: was, this was quite, quite a bit of arm-twisting. But to, to broaden this out, the fact is, again, that we thought that we had understood finally at that point that the United States couldn't stay out of things. And uh, that we had to be building these structures of peace, the and, indispensable nation. Yeah, and um, unfortunately, then in the after nine eleven, there was a different kind of climate. Mm-hmm. And it was a more aggressive climate, and so instead of staying out of things, we created things like the Iraq War, which, in my personal view, was a major mistake. Well, we're
1: going to take a break, and we'll uh, get into some of those things in in the second segment here. Uh, this is the Global Tennessee Podcast. I'm Patrick Ryan from the World Affairs Council. We're talking with Ambassador John Kornblum, and after a short break, we'll uh, get into some more fascinating uh Uh, perspectives and insights on U.S.-European relations and uh, his career as a diplomat, uh, mostly in Europe and uh, as a businessman, and now as uh, a Nashvilleian. So we'll be right back.
0: You're listening to Global Tennessee from the World Affairs Council. We invite you to share your thoughts with us in email, info at tnwac.org. You can subscribe to the World Affairs Council newsletter on the website, tnwac.org. And you can like us on Facebook at TennesseeWAC, as well as follow us on Twitter at TNWAC. Don't forget to tell your friends about Global Tennessee and the World Affairs Council. This podcast and other educational programs from the World Affairs Council are supported by you and our sponsors. Are you interested in supporting global affairs awareness in your community? Visit TNWAC.org for more information.
1: We're back with Ambassador John Kornblum. We're having a great conversation about U.S.-European relations, the situation in the European Union, and his recollections of the uh, Balkans War and the Dayton Peace Accords in which he was eminently uh, uh, involved in uh, in resolving that, uh, that combat uh, in uh, Europe. Um, Ambassador, we're going to uh, turn the page here a little bit and, and talk about uh, – uh, what's going on in, in Europe these days, specifically Brexit? And you also wanted to talk about uh, the upheaval in the, in the digital world. Let's let's start with Brexit. As as uh, we're recording this, uh, there's been turmoil in the British uh, Parliament, and we're not quite sure what's going to happen on Halloween, October 31st, which is the deadline for. Uh, concluding an agreement on Brexit, so things are up in the air. So uh, they may change by the time people hear this, but uh, what, what's your take on w- where we are now and and uh, what we see happening in Brexit and, and in the European Union?
2: Well, I think it's important to uh, start well, almost 30 years back because the the world, not just the European world, the entire world was very stable during the 45 years of Cold War, mostly because of uh, the nuclear standoff, but also because uh, the United States and the Soviet Union sort of managed their parts of the world. When the Cold War ended, we were all in a very positive mood because there were even people who wrote books about it that we thought democracy had won forever. There wasn't gonna ever be any more different kinds of systems, that was naive to believe that the end of history the end of history it was naive to believe it but you know why not why not be positive positive? and so uh we have now gone through 30 years of tremendous prosperity tremendous expansion of capital uh, available to c- countries and to individuals tremendous increase in the living standard of human beings in the world there are some estimates which say two and a half or three billion people have been lifted out of official poverty during this time.
1: Mostly the expansion in China.
2: Not only though, also in India has done brilliant right. stuff, and yeah. uh, there are some sad places like Africa which are not making. But still, it's been in many ways a really positive 30 years. But what seems to happen to human beings is they get sort of tired of everything being stable and and and. And also feelings come out. And as this happened, lots of internal feelings came out, either positive or negative. Then came new technology, the digital world, which is confusing to most of us. And all these things started wearing away. Also the passage of time. When you get to be a certain age, as I have, you realize that lots of people don't remember what you remember because they weren't there. It's not their fault. They weren't there. And so the world looks different. This is all leading to <clears throat> fairly major upheavals, to confrontation. In the United States, we don't need to talk about it. There are tremendous upheavals here, but the same thing is happening in Europe. And, interestingly enough, in the United Kingdom. And the United Kingdom is called that because it's not England, as lots of people think, but it's at least four separate entities. There are other smaller ones who are not so big, but, and it's, a, it's not a unified place at all. And Brexit came out of this sense of disunity and out of this um, feeling also of of not c- keeping up with progress it was, was taking. And it really was, and there's a certain you know uh, uh, relationship with what, what the United States, it started out as major confrontation inside the Conservative Party. And David Cameron, who was Prime Minister at that time, thought that he would get rid of this by having a referendum and Telling everybody, you know, we're going to stay in Europe and just vote for it, and then we'll get rid of all these dissidents. The basis of this is that England is not Europe. They will tell you they are, but they're culturally different. They don't really like being with the continental Europeans. It's a different, it's like you know Texas and Massachusetts. It's just different worlds. <laughs> and um, so, so, but none of us believed that they would ever want to leave the European Union, and yeah. they did. Now, what that's okay, that's that, but what has happened since then is almost as treacherous and, and bad is that rather than having an orderly exit from the European Union, they've had an unbelievably disorderly exit. Why is that? Because again, there's the confrontation which led to the Brexit vote, has also led to the inability to negotiate an orderly exit. And so the United Kingdom is going to be in a very disorganized, difficult shape for really the next 20 years or more. It's really been a major social upheaval. The Europeans are looking on with, of course, with great fear because they're afraid the same thing is going to happen to them, and there are signs that it will. In fact, not Brexit, but upheaval political uh, populism. The president of France, who most of us like, including me, but we have to note that he is a populist he did away with all the rest of the political parties went over their heads to spoke to the people and won so there's going to be lots of ups and downs the country i know best is germany is of course frightened at this because they don't trust themselves they don't trust their own history they're afraid that if the solid stable europe that they've known over the past more than 50 years now 60 years doesn't continue that they may go back to their old bad past. I don't think that's a danger, but I don't. I didn't grow up there, so I'm not. I don't have their feelings that they do. So in other words, everything's in turmoil now. You add another element to it, and that is rapid, destructive technological change. We don't get you to go into it. We all know that. These the smartphone is only ten years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, The internet is only 25 years old. And look at the uh, unbelievable changes which have taken place in in, in 25 years. That has to be disorienting for society. Occupations are being simply whipped off the table. They don't exist anymore. Um, Products don't exist. Major department stores are disappearing, for example, et cetera, et cetera. Our world is just being changed in front of us at a quicker pace than has ever happened, I think, in human history. The 19th century was also a very rapid uh, change, but that took at least 100 years for that to happen. We're doing it in 25 or 30 years. And so there's gonna be lots of misunderstanding, be lots of unhappiness, there's gonna be lots of political unhappiness. And that is why I will come back to the Atlantic relationship and the democratic system to make sure that this all happens in a Peaceful and democratic way, the democracies have to understand who they are and what they're for, and they have to stick together. When, if there ever was a time when Europe and America need to stick together, it's now. It's about as dramatic as the beginning of World War II or the Cold War or whatever. It's the same kind of thing. Luckily, it's not a war as such, but our values in our system are still under threat.
1: Nobody believes bad things can happen until they do.
2: Until they do. But even a country as large as the United States can't do it alone. And this is my, obviously, I was a diplomat for a long time. I believe in cooperation. There is no alternative for us to be working with others. None whatsoever. There is no, to coin a phrase, making America great again by by being angry. In fact, America is great. It always has been great. And it will continue to be great. I have no doubt about that. The question is, how well do we do at being great? How much conflict do we have or how much conflict don't we have? And that is the well-being of our citizens has to do also with partnerships with other countries. That's not just Europe. It's Japan, for example. It's Australia. It's increasingly India, which is the world's largest democracy. And it is one. We should honor them very much for the way they make a form of democracy work. So there are lots of countries around the world who want to be in a democratic partnership with us, and that's the only country who can lead that partnership and make it work is the United States.
1: Now, uh, the the Brexit has given rise to questions that, as you just mentioned, that uh, there could be other countries, and uh, right. you know we've seen uh, what's been called Euro skeptics. Uh, in, uh, in some countries, uh, Poland, Hungary, and, and some others, the rise of right-wing nationalism, which uh, we're not quite sure if that's a, a trend, passing trend or a, a phenomenon that's uh, taking hold. Uh, what's what's the feeling that, that you, you see uh, for other Brexits? Other I, don't,
2: I don't think there'll be other Brexits, but there could be, I don't have an, uh, an acronym for it, there could be countries who fall out. And the most um, uh, vital candidate for that right now is, believe it or not, is Italy. Italy doesn't want to leave the European Union, but Italy's economy is about to explode. And it could be that uh, the Italians would somehow leave. There's also the danger of an imbalance in the European Union following the the departure of the British. How so? Uh, Europe is split. Not east-west as it used to be, but north-south. And the northern countries in Europe are the most uh, progressive, the most highly developed of any place in the world. The southern countries are um, less developed and less able to keep up with modern technology. And in in, in particular, less able to keep their expenses uh, in tow. And they have, unemployment in Germany right now is about 3%. Youth unemployment in Italy, Spain, Portugal, other places, is 50%. 50% of people under 25. Mm. And if you were to go Is there to, a
1: demographic bulge? Uh, no,
2: or, it's the, exactly the opposite. There's a declining population, but even the small number of 25-year-olds they can't get jobs for.
1: Yeah, that's counterintuitive. That. Uh, yeah.
2: And if you were to go to my office, where my office is in the center of Berlin... You would think you're in Rome or Madrid because the number of young Italians and Spaniards who have simply, there's freedom of movement inside the European Union. You don't right. have to have a passport or a work permit. They've just come to Germany to work because there's no work for them at home. There's a, there's a lost generation being created in Italy right now who, who, have, who have never uh, moved out from their parents, for example. Most of them still have to live with their parents. It's, a, it's not a good situation. This is the danger not so much of Brexit but of societies not being able to keep up and then um, conflict building up inside Europe between the North and the South.
1: And uh, add on top of that the migration flow, the refugee crisis And of, of, of course that's a
2: whole separate thing which we need to talk about. It's the same thing that we have in the United States. right? Except, um,
1: well, I think it it might be more severe than we have, than the problem we have in the United States. The situation on the southern border is in the news a lot, but uh, no one uh, could compare that to the million or so uh, refugees taken in by Germany.
2: And uh, there's a big debate about the president and his wall. If you want to see a real wall, go to the Hungarian-Serbian border. It's a massive wall with barbed wire and lights and everything that you need to keep people out. It's not some small wall, it's a really big one. Mm-hmm. And the Hungarians threw that thing up within six months. So um, the 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 immigration refugee issue is important. First, because they need people. Germany needs people desperately. They have two hundred, three hundred thousand 300,000 jobs going begging right now. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they're trying to work out a new kind of immigration law which is based quite a bit on ours so they can get more talented people to immigrate to Germany.
1: Well, they've had guest worker programs for decades now the Turks and Yeah, uh, but and no, others. they
2: stopped quite a while ago, but they were for factory workers. Okay. They, and there are hardly any factory workers anymore as we know. But Germany right now has the same percentage of foreign born as the United States does, 13-14%. That's again something people don't understand, but Germany is if you go again, I live in the big metropolitan city. If you walk down the street it's a polyglot of languages. And some of
1: that, uh, the cultural differences are, are leading to the rise of, uh, of right-wing nationalism.
2: That's the then the third point, and that is uh, that the, let's call it the city-land, city-countryside difference is, is very strong. And it, just as in the United States, the people who live out in the regions where there's no big cities, and et cetera, I f- feel that they're being left behind or not being understood or whatever. So there's a great, bit of confrontation going on there the problems if you were a an American mayor and a German mayor and you had your agenda on your desk the problems facing either an American mayor or a German mayor are virtually the same and that's my basic last point is that the world is coming together in a way that we never expected it not through tremendous brilliant achievements but through the pressures of society which are brought about by Passage of time, immigration of people, technology, whatever else there is. And uh, those are the issues which our politicians are facing right now.
1: Just want to remind everyone, this is the uh, Global Tennessee Podcast, where we're talking with Ambassador John Kornblum, who had a, uh, a very long, distinguished career. He was the U.S. Ambassador to Germany and numerous other leadership positions in the State Department and in international organizations uh, in Europe and uh we're pleased to have him here with us. Uh, Ambassador, we're, uh, we're closing out on, on time here. Uh, can you give us a, a reflection on uh, your thoughts of where the U.S. diplomatic uh, community, the national security policy uh, infrastructure, the interagency process, the, the ability of the United States to uh, marshal all of its uh, uh, government uh, institutions to, uh, to do the right thing in the world?
2: Well, you've hit, of course, a point uh, which is uh, very much upon us right now. That is that the two things are happening. Generations are changing, which we just discussed. But also we've had now, um, you, you might be surprised when I say this, three administrations, Bush, Obama, and Trump, who have pushed away from the standard diplomatic structural way of doing things and tried to do things more off off track so to speak uh trump o- is oval
1: the, office centric
2: oval office centric trump is the most dramatic obviously he's dramatic for a number of reasons but obama did not at all have a a cooperative approach with his with the system and george w bush as we know was involved nine eleven and in iraq and everything and so the system so the The system that was set up in the 1950s and 60s, which uh, continued to work all through my active period, is now breaking apart. And um, there's going to be new generations coming with new points of view. If you think that somebody who's 30 years old right now barely knew that there was a Soviet Union for him or her, the, the Vietnam War is some ancient thing back there somewhere. Uh, we've we've gone through a whole era, sort of almost sleepwalking since 1990, and now the era is catching up with us.
1: Lessons learned but forgotten.
2: That's right, and also new people who haven't lived the history. Right, and living history is is part of understanding the world, and and understanding history that you didn't live is harder.
1: Well, we, uh, we certainly need to uh, take stock of, of where we are and where we're going in the world. Uh, any last thoughts as we uh, close out our podcast today on uh, the things we've been talking about, the European Union, uh, what, what uh, is happening there, our transatlantic relationship, the U.S. national security policy?
2: Well, my only point is, again, that um, when you're sitting in Nashville, it's hard to think that there's a world out there which is all falling apart and everything because it's so beautiful here. But even a country as big and as strong as the United States can't go it alone. We need partners and we need respect and we need to respect our partners. And we need to take account of their views even if we sometimes don't like them, even if sometimes they're not what we feel we need to do. There is a way of respectful disagreement and a way of disrespectful disagreement and we should always be respectful.
1: Well, thank you, uh, Ambassador John Kornblum, for spending time with us today in the Global Tennessee podcast. Uh, This is Patrick Ryan for the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Again, you can uh, consult the podcast notes for information about Ambassador Kornblum and some other references to uh, what's happening in uh, the EU, uh, Brexit, the U.S. Transatlantic Alliance, Uh, and uh, some of the other uh, items that we talked about today. Uh, So for the Global Tennessee Podcast, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, Please visit our soundcloud.com slash TNWAC page to uh, write a review and uh, share some uh, feedback with us on how we're doing. We'd like to hear from you about uh, ideas for future podcasts. And please remember to become a member of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. That's how we keep uh, the lights on and doing what we're doing. Uh, This is Patrick Ryan, and thanks for listening.
0: This has been Global Tennessee from the World Affairs Council in cooperation with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The executive producer of Global Tennessee is Patrick Ryan. Senior producer, Logan Monday. Technical advisor, Bill Ryan. And the voice of Global Tennessee, as well as the Penn Jones conspiracy, I'm Benjamin Olson. Visit tnwac.org podcast for more information.